Welcome to The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Gazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. This week's episode is sponsored by the Massachusetts Business Roundtable. Lauren Dzenski is out this week, so I'm here with a guest host. I'm Lizzie Wyant of the Metropolitan Area Planning Commission. So Lizzie Wyant's a good friend of mine, and uh, because Lauren's out on vacation this week, I thought it'd be great to have her here, um, both for her insider knowledge of Massachusetts politics, and very luckily, she's also an expert in the Massachusetts state budget process. So Lizzie, why don't you explain a little bit about what MAPC is, where you work, just so listeners can understand a bit about, a, a bit about your background. Sure. So MAPC is the regional planning agency serving the 101 cities and towns of the Boston metropolitan region. We are charged with doing a regional plan every 10 plus years or so. Uh, We serve as vice chair of the MPO, which is an organization we're often confused for, but that is the organization that's charged with programming federal transportation dollars. But our biggest charge is that we provide technical assistance to our cities and towns for all kinds of planning projects, everything from transportation, housing, water, land use, to more innovative technical assistance opportunities around public health, clean energy, arts, and culture. Excellent. And tell us a bit about your role there. Sure. So I'm the manager of government affairs, and I spend a lot of my time in the statehouse representing our member communities. But we also, as an agency, coordinate a couple of advocacy coalitions, particularly municipal CEOs. And so I do a lot of work with the Metro Mayor's Coalition and the North Shore Coalition. Both of those coalitions are really focused on climate issues and housing issues and transportation. Excellent. All right. Well, this week we have a lot to get to. Uh, We have a final set of ballot questions just done in the last couple weeks now that the Supreme Judicial Court case is over, now that we've had the the grand bargain. So we'll have our ballot question expert, George Cronin, who's been here at the horse race before. Um, He'll be back this week. We also have a bunch of new developments in the contest for the Seventh Congressional District. That's the race between Ayanna Presley and Congressman Michael Capuano. So we'll talk to Jen Smith of the Dorchester Reporter about that. And we also have big news as far as Massachusetts political leaders running for office. So for that, we'll have a good friend of the podcast, Lauren Dzinski, who couldn't couldn't stay away for the week, even though she is on vacation. Um, but before we get get to that, we have big news today, and I'd like to shuffle things around a little bit. So longtime listeners of the pod know that we usually do our Something to Watch segment at the end, but just this morning we have a state budget in place. The budget was pretty significantly delayed, but we just had an, an announcement of an agreement this morning, and because we have a budget expert here, Lizzie Wyant, I thought I'd take this opportunity and ask you to walk us through a little bit about what happened. So other than having a budget, what are the big headlines here? What's in and what's out? Well, the biggest headline is having a budget because the budget is really, really late. They should have passed it and had it to the governor's desk by the beginning of this month. So the fact that it's here is the biggest news. But importantly, the budget went over the amount that was passed in either the House version or the Senate version because we actually saw a budget surplus this year. And so they passed a budget with a larger amount than either branch had actually passed. So go through that in more detail because it's unusual for you know, the amount of a compromise to be greater than the amount that either party is asking for. How did that happen? this year? So a couple of things were at play. I think, you know, if you remember last year in the budget, we were contemplating the FY18 budget and revenues were coming in month over month lower than they had been projected at the start of the fiscal year. And so at the very end, when they were actually working out in the conference committee between the House and the Senate budgets, they actually had to pull back on the number. This year, revenues have been a lot higher month over month. I think everyone's buying more, feeling a little more comfortable. Our, com- our economy is really chugging along. 
And then at the very end of FY18, we actually saw a surplus um, that came back in FY18. And the governor's already filed a supplemental budget for FY18 to spend that money. But I think it also helped legislators that were hammering out these budget differences feel a little more comfortable looking ahead to FY19. So having more money than we expected isn't a problem we're used to. Is it something we should expect to continue? I mean, is this the new level that the budget should sort of be aiming at? Or is this just a one-time thing? I think just like in your household budget, you should never assume that new money that's coming in is going to be there forever. It's a rare opportunity. We're going to use it to shore up the rainy day fund, and then we're going to plow the money into some really important programs in the Commonwealth. We've talked about it a bit before, but one of the things that was holding up the budget at the end were, was the question of all the different policy ideas which had been attached, largely by the Senate. Um, House Speaker DeLeo actually suggested taking some of them out to speed things along. Where did we end up on all of that? So I think the big thing to watch there was around the sanctuary cities language, and that did not make it into the final accord. You know, they that issue of whether or not policy riders should kind of come alongside the budget comes up almost every single year, but they always include them. This year was no difference. There's a number of outside policy sections that are really separate from those funding levels that were included in the budget this year, but the biggest question was answered. They did not include the sanctuary cities language. Okay, so some of the big policy items d- did make it through. How about the other policy issues that were not included in the budget. Longtime friend of the pod, Katie Landon of State House News, points out that the budget's late arrival is complicating work on other bills and sort of pushing it to the last minute. Where are we on all the other things that the legislature might want to take up this session? We are slammed and down to the very last second. Um, and isn't it game. always like that, or is this is this year unusual even by the legislature's standards? It's often like this, but it's really tight this year. And I think that's because so many of the policy issues that are coming down to the wire are really big issues that both branches care about a lot. And they want to get right and they want to kind of plant their flag as to where they feel about these issues. And, you know, it's not lost on any of us that it's also an election year. And so they want to pass these issues so that they can help run on them. So we're still watching out for opioid legislation, short-term rental legislation, energy and environmental bills, and an economic development bill. Those are some of the big things we're watching for. Well, so still a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, and just one more question. So explain what happens now with the budget in terms of the votes that need to be taken, possible vetoes, and what happens after vetoes. And what's this? You were telling me before we went on the air that the schedule here matter, matters a lot, and there's suddenly a huge rush for a specific reason. Tell us what's going on. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of calendar trickery at play. The governor has 10 days from the time the legislature sends him the budget to look at the budget and make any vetoes. The legislature always wants an opportunity to override those vetoes, but by their own rules, they have to be done by the 31st. So their goal is to get him the budget as soon as possible so that he can take his full 10 days, which he likely will, and they still have time to review his changes and override his vetoes. They're going to try to get him that budget today so that they don't have to spend the weekend before the end of session going through every single one of his line items and figuring out what they want to override, which is usually everything. All right, Lizzie. Well, thanks for that. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. So the grand bargain and the Supreme Judicial Court ruling on fair share left us with a much clearer picture of what's on the ballot this fall. And it's really different than how things looked just a few weeks ago. We're down to just three ballot questions, including questions on patients' limits for nurses, an advisory question on campaign contributions and corporate personhood, and repealing the transgender bill. Joining us to talk through how it unfolds from here, we have horse race ballot question correspondent George Cronin. He is the managing director for public affairs practice at Rasky Partners and has a very lengthy resume when it comes to winning ballot questions here in the state. George, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. 
So when you were last year, the ballot looked pretty different than it does today. The Supreme Judicial Court has made a decision on fair share. We've seen the grand bargain on minimum wage and paid family leave and the sales tax. Give us a sense of how typical it is for so many big questions to be resolved outside of the ballot. It's unusual to have as many of the big ticket items be resolved in one general conversation. That one compromise, the so-called grand bargain, really changed the ballot question landscape. It wasn't too long ago that there was speculation that where 10 or 12 ballot questions would be on the ballot in November. Last September, there were 21 certified initiative petitions. They ranged from health care to energy to taxation, 18 different topics. And as a result of some process hurdles and a legal challenge and a legislative compromise, we're left with three questions on the November ballot. So we've heard a lot of different views about whether this is a good way to make pu- public policy. So there were some big, huge revenue items that were proposed to, to, to be resolved by the ballot question process. And most of them, they're all gone now. But th- I think the question that lingers is, billions of dollars in the state budget, is this a good way to decide that? Or does this represent a failure of the legislature that it even got to this point? One of the services that our firm provides is ballot question management. So from a, from a business standpoint, we like ballot questions. Having said that, having worked on a yes and a no campaign, several yes and no campaigns in the past, it's hard to argue that ballot questions don't increase voter participation. So if you believe that civic engagement uh, and an increase in voter participation are good for democracy, then there are benefits to the ballot question approach to policymaking. So I want to drill down on that a little bit. I think a lot of progressive advocates were really hoping that the ballot questions that ultimately got knocked off were going to be turnout drivers. They were going to bring people to the polls. What does it mean now with the questions that we have remaining? Is there is there a question there that's driving people to the polls? And, and how, do, how do questions in general affect voter turnout? There are two questions left on the ballot that have the potential to increase voter turnout. And that really hinges on um, the yes and no side and both of those questions to be able to mobilize and get their bases, their respective bases, out to the polls. Question one and question three both have the potential to increase voter turnout. And that's a good segue, actually. Let's talk about what the questions are that are left in the ballot, and let's just take them in order. So the first one is the question on nurse-staffing ratios. Tell us what it does and how the campaign for this one will shape up. This is a, a fight between the Nurses Association and the hospitals. It deals with nurse-staffing ratios and patient-to-nurse required ratios in hospital settings. And it's an issue that has been discussed in the legislature in the past. There was a compromise reached several years ago, and the nurses are back at it again this year. The nurses are on the yes side. The hospitals are on the no side. One of the things to watch for on both ballot question one and ballot question three, which we'll get into, is the next campaign disclosure deadline. The campaigns are required to disclose the funding that they've received on September 7th. So we'll have a good sense on September 7th what kind of resources both sides in question one have and and the resources that they're going to have to spend in getting their message out. So on question two, this question is about Citizens United and would create a, a citizen commission to push a constitutional amendment. What are the practical implications of this? Are we changing the United States Constitution in Massachusetts? That's a good question. We're not changing the, the Constitution yet. This, this, as you said, it would create a commission that would make recommendations. And this is part of a national movement to undo Citizens United. 
not sure how much attention this ballot question is going to get. As of right now, there's a yes committee in place. There's no opposition committee in place. So if there's no opposition, how do they draw a dialogue? How do they have a discussion? It might not be a bad thing for the yes committee. This might fly below the radar screen and it might pass as is. And what's the real impact if it does pass? I mean, you, you mentioned a commission. Is that the full impact of this ballot question would be a commission to try to look for ways to overturn Citizens United, or what does this question actually do? It's a commission that would make recommendations for a change to the U.S. Constitution. As I understand, there's a couple of ways to change the U.S. Constitution. This is an initial step here in Massachusetts. The third one is the one that's really drawn the most public attention, I think, already, and that's the one about repealing the transgender accommodations bill here in Massachusetts. We've heard it talked about as even as a national proving ground. How contentious would we expect this one to be? This one's going to get pretty contentious. It's quiet right now. And that's because a lot of voters are not paying attention to campaigns in general, specifically the ballot question. So after Labor Day, when people start to pay attention, the ballot questions begin to uh, do their advertising and begin their mobilization efforts, the interest will pick up and it has the potential to be a very contentious issue. It, it has the potential to draw national money. Right now, I think the recent poll, which WBUR was involved in, had a 52-38. So for all intents and purposes, it could be a close race, depending on the amount of resources that come in on either side. And I mean, 52%, in other words, 52% would oppose the idea of repealing it. Um, but that actually gets at a sort of interesting technical question, which is, Yes, actually means keep the law, even though the referendum is about repealing the law. Explain what that's about. That's a good point. It's a repeal effort. But as you said, you vote yes to support and no to repeal. The Massachusetts Constitution and the election laws require the question to be written. It asks the question, do you approve of a law? And the law is summarized on the ballot. So even if you're seeking a repeal, it still asks, if do you approve of the law? And in this case, they list the transgender law on the ballot. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, that ballot question confusion and how it can sort of work in to help a campaign or hurt a campaign when you have that kind of confusion. It ties back to the kind of the general rule of thumb in a ballot question, which is you mobilize to a yes and you persuade to a no. And that tends to play into confusion. And when there's confusion and uncertainty, the default position for a lot of people is to, to vote no. So if there's confusion, there's, got a, there, there's a possibility that there will be confusion on ballot question three. Just because of the way the question is written, that could benefit the no side. Because people's instinct is to vote no. That's right. That's right. Because no keeps things the same. No so is if you the don't status. understand it, just... No is the status quo. No is the safe position. No is the default position when you don't understand the issue. Whereas here, no actually is the thing that makes the change. Correct. Fascinating. All right. So looking back to 2016, we saw, I think, what anybody would call just staggering amounts of money spent on ballot questions. What are we looking at this year? Question one and question three have the potential to draw some resources. Not likely to see the amounts that were spent in 2016. The charter school one in particular generated a tremendous amount of revenue. The nurses have said they'll spend the resources necessary to get their messaging out. The hospitals haven't said anything yet with regard to spending amounts, but it's fair to say they're going to make sure that the electorate understands their side of that issue as well. So that, that ballot question will draw some financial resources. Question three is kind of an unknown. It's a wild card. It really depends on what the first couple of public polls show, whether or not uh, some of these national ideological groups on the pro and con side decide to make Massachusetts a, a focus and, and spend some resources here. 
So thinking about some of those national groups coming in, is this going to be a national proving ground? Are these groups going to come in? Would it work? Would they actually be able to sway the vote to a no? It has the potential. Though The national groups will be watching the public polling, their own internal polling. Massachusetts is a blue state, so this is considered uh, an issue that if, if they can repeal this law in blue Massachusetts, just think of what they can do in Arkansas and Alabama and some of the other more conservative states around the nation. So it's mid-July right now, and you mentioned that the campaign for this really gets kicked up sort of after Labor Day. What happens between now and then? What should we be watching for? We'll begin to see some public polls. Some of the statewide newspaper will begin to publish some polls. We may see uh, an editorial or two, either pro or con on the ballot questions. In all likelihood, they'll wait till after Labor Day, but we may see some before that. Again, the disclosure date of September 7th is important. That will show what resources exist on both sides. There was a deadline yesterday for the 150-word argument to the Secretary of State's office, which will appear in the voter guide. So the, the voter guides will be in mailboxes sometime later on in the fall, and they'll contain the summary, they'll contain the ballot question language, and they'll contain the 150-word argument, which is the messaging platforms that both the yes and the no campaigns provide. And, and we're sure that all the voters are going to go through those voter guides as soon as they get them and page highlight them and figure it all out like they always do instead of bringing them with them to the polls to figure out what the questions are. Let's hope so. Exactly. All right. Well, George Cronin of Rasky Partners, thank you for being here. It's been great. Thank you. One of the highest profile races this cycle has been a Democratic primary contest where Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley is challenging longtime incumbent Congressman Mike Capuano. The race has drawn intense national interest, with storylines covering everything from the long shot challenging the incumbent to issues of race and age. A headline in the Dorchester Reporter called it, quote, a proxy fight for Democrats' future. So joining us here in the studio to talk about where this race is right now, we have the author of that article and many-time horse race visitor, Jen Smith. Jen, thank you for coming back. Hi, Steve. So let's get right into it. I know reporters don't write and often complain about the headlines on their articles, but the headline on yours called this a proxy fight for the Democrats' future. Is that what it is? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, the uh, the headline debate is uh, one as old as time. I think that it is, it's a fair characterization when you look at the lessons people are trying to draw from it. Not necessarily that the race itself is a proxy fight from the Democrats' future or for the Democrats' future, but that... The Democrats are kind of in the wilderness right now. They're looking for any lessons that they can draw, which is why they looked at the New York 14th district for clues. It's why they've been looking um, at races up and down in the South, uh, governor's races, basic statehouse rep races. They're kind of looking for a pathway. So I think that the Ayanna Presley, Michael Capuano race is a proxy in that they're looking for more lessons that they can draw from that. So do you think it's a fair comparison to, to draw between this race and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez race in New York? That one's really interesting because on the surface, sure, you've got, you know, um, a new kind of challenger woman of color taking on an older establishment white incumbent who's been in the position for a really long time. But the differences kind of are everything else aside from that. Uh, and even as Ayanna Presley would be among the first to point out, 
even though she really, really does like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and they've kind of endorsed each other and been engaged in each other's campaigns, in the 14th, it was a first-time challenger. You know, she's 28, bartender, whereas Presley, she's 44, and she's been in office winning competitive citywide races for an at-large counselorship since 2009. So she's not really a newbie to the race. She's not a newbie to the region. And then on top of that, as she also pointed out when I sat down with her, was the way she put it is Capuano is not asleep at the switch, where Joe Crowley in the 14th in New York was so checked out for a lot of people, he actually didn't even debate her in one case. He sent a surrogate to do that, whereas Capuano has been in the district. He has been racking up endorsements. He is clearly taking this very seriously. And then the last distinction I would say between that is just the progressive bona fides that Capuano clearly has. And, and it leads into one of the biggest points of contention for both of them uh, because it's very, very hard to distinguish yourself when you already have a progressive incumbent, and uh, and they're not really disagreeing on too many of the issues. So let's talk about a couple of the issues that you brought up, starting with endorsements, um, because Congressman Capuano has gotten some pretty big ones, including Mayor Marty Walsh, former Governor Deval Patrick, and even the Congressional Black Caucus. Is this just the incumbency advantage coming into play, or do these people sort of see something in Capuano? How did these endorsements come about, and how specifically are press, uh, is the Presley campaign reacting to these endorsements? Mm, it's a combination of the two, actually. So when you're talking about longtime uh, political representatives and longtime political activists, they know each other. They've been in and out of each other's campaigns for decades now. When Walsh endorsed Capuano, he noted that Capuano was one of the first people to champion him for his rep seat. So it's not just that they agree on a lot of the major issues, and they wouldn't endorse him if they didn't agree on the issues, which again goes back to him having those progressive credentials already under his belt. But yeah, I think the the interesting thing is more in terms of the Deval Patrick endorsement. Again, they go back a long way. But also uh, John Lewis, Rep. John Lewis, where some of the more interesting endorsements that Capuano has been kind of collecting and securing have actually been from a number of prominent black politicians and other politicians of color, even at the same time as he says he doesn't really want to make this an identity politics kind of race. So if you're looking at that... The reaction from the Presley side has been pretty interesting, where they basically pivot to, we've got to focus on churning out the grassroots. We've got to focus on making sure that this is about the lens that we're bringing. We can't be focused on endorsements. But at the same time, in recent weeks, uh, she's been really touting the fact that a lot of her city council uh, colleagues have come out and supported her, particularly the women and the women of color. About half of the Cambridge City Council just endorsed her, the JP Progress just endorsed her. So on the Boston slash greater Boston front, I think she's 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 building up endorsements that align very well with her messaging. And Capuano's doing pretty much the same thing. He's saying, I've been in here for a while and these people have all known me while I've been here. So let's talk about that experience piece for a little bit because I've heard Councilor Presley say that in some respects she feels like she's being punished for challenging an incumbent. How do you think that that plays out in a race like this? He does have the benefit of experience on his side, but there's something to be said for the fact that she's challenging him, just the act of her challenging him. How do you think that plays out for voters? Yeah, I think for voters and the ones that I've spoken to, 
if they're paying attention to the race, they don't really care that much that she's going after him on a politico macro level. Most voters aren't really focused on that. The politicos like talking about it a lot. But yeah, I think the thing that when people are thinking about incumbency and when I'm talking to them about incumbency, the biggest thing in Capuano's corner is actually that he's got the experience having been in office, not that they're annoyed with her for trying to take his seat. He's trying to make the case that it's not that he's been in office for a really long time and therefore should remain in office, but because he has been in office, he has built up a set of skills and a set of relationships that then makes it easier to go forward and continue doing the job that he's done. So that case, I think, is resonating with voters a little bit more strongly, whereas it might actually in this environment kind of tweak people if you're trying to use the fact that she's challenging him as as a negative rather than the Democrats keep saying publicly even you know Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are staying out of this one but they both say we need new blood in the Democratic Party so you can't kind of say that on one side and then also be like but not here. So another part of the proxy, getting back to the whole, whole idea that this is a proxy fight, another part of that is what issues Democrats should focus on. And one of the questions early on in this race was, is there really actually any difference between these two candidates? How have they been distinguishing themselves from each other, if at all, on the issues? They haven't really been distinguishing each other, uh, distinguishing between each other on the voting platform. Neither of them is saying that they would be voting differently on legislation that's come about so far. What they are saying is that they are both putting forward policy and pushing for laws and legislation and making stands that's shaped, I'd say, by by their experiences. So for instance, um, it's not that if a vote to expand healthcare to Medicaid for all, for instance, came to the table, they wouldn't both vote for it. They're both in favor of it. The difference that Presley would point out is that she is more likely to be advocating organically because of her experience for things like trauma supports in schools as opposed to increasing security in schools. So they both understand that the Democrats are not really in a position right now to push legislation through. They both understand that the most they can do is kind of be vocal and push for things that are informed by their experiences. So Presley is more likely to put forward things that are kind of arising from these grassroots conversations she's having, having arise from her personal history. She's, you know, a survivor of sexual assault. She is very, very familiar with inequities in communities of color, for instance, um, whereas Capuano, for instance, just went to the border. And uh, that means that he is, is kind of trying to keep immigration on the front burner um, and is pushing for legislation more around that. So while we have you here, I want to ask you about the many other races that are happening in your home turf of Dorchester. What else should we be focusing on? What else is going on? Yeah, it's a busy election season, isn't it? So the Suffolk County DA's race is uh, is a big one. It's a crowded field. You got five Democrats running for the for the primary and one independent as well. Any sense of who's in front on that one? Yeah, I'd say uh, one of the easiest ways to look at that is by following the money and following some of the prominent endorsements. The favorite as far as backing goes is probably Greg Henning, who's coming out of being with the DA's office for 10 years. 
D.A. Conley's behind him. He's got something like $240,000 in his campaign chest. And I'd say right behind that, if you're looking at a strong showing um, from the candidates of color, the women who are running, is Rachel Rawlings, who uh, is, of course, the former um, legal head for Massport and several other state transportation agencies, who is around $91,000 in her campaign fund. And everything, everyone else is well below that. And then aside from that, I'd say keep an eye on the 5th Suffolk District that's, uh, uh, that Avandro Carvalho actually left to pursue the DA's, DA's post, which is between Elizabeth Miranda and Darren Howell. And then if you want to look at how AP CAP plays out on the local front, look at the 12th Suffolk District, which is down around Mattapan. It's a very diverse district. And you have a white incumbent, Dan Cullinane, who is fending off again a challenge from uh, Javon Lissette, who is a black man. And last time around, Jovan cleared about 30% and Cullinane cleared 50 But depending on the demographics of the folks who come out in the primary, that could actually shape that race. Interesting. Yeah, uh, AP Cap took me a second. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 exactly. It could either be Associated Press or Captain America, I guess, who is, is his nephew. Ayanna Presley and Ayanna Michael Capuano. Presley and Michael okay. Capuano. Yes. All right. Well, Jen Smith of the Dorchester Reporter, thank you very much for being here. Of course, always. At this early stage, the field of potential 2020 presidential candidates is huge. And as usual, a number of current and former Massachusetts leaders are in the mix. One name that's been in the news this week is former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. Though she's off this week, I caught up with 2020 presidential candidate Bureau Chief Lauren Dozenski to get us all up to speed on what's happened so far and what it may mean for 2018 and 2020. Lauren, I know it's your first time as a guest on the horse race, so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an <laughs> honor. I've, I've missed being on the podcast so much that I found a way to shoehorn myself into a segment. And as a guest, no less. And Yeah, and I got a title boost. So I'm going to ask lots of tough questions here. I'm ready. So I hope you came prepared. So ready. So seriously, the thing that caught our eye this week was a trip that Deval Patrick made to Texas. So what happened and what does it mean? Right. So former Governor Deval Patrick traveled to Texas this past weekend to officially campaign for Colin Allred. This is the Democrat who is challenging incumbent Congressman Pete Sessions in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The notable thing about this development, the thing why anyone should actually care about this, is that, number one, we have known that Deval Patrick was going to hit the campaign trail in the midterms to be helpful in any way. We've known that this was going to happen, but this is the first tangible example of Deval Patrick doing just that. It's essentially the beginning of midterm Deval Patrick, which would then lead on to what happens next. And as I've reported, Patrick has told people in his inner circle that he's supposed to decide by the end of this year whether or not he's going to run for president. And by and large, the experiences that he has on the campaign trail, including in Texas this weekend, will inform his decision of whether or not he's going to run. It's not exactly the typical place you go to kick off your presidential campaign or your presidential listening tour. I mean, usually you hear about trips to the Iowa State Fair or, you know, random like politics and eggs and other breakfasts up in New Hampshire. Why this race? Why Texas? It's a little bit more conspicuous. Uh, Obviously, it's Texas. It's not Iowa. But at the same time, it also represents that Patrick, at least right now, is oriented more toward 2018 as opposed to 2020. This race, this House race in Texas, represents one of the Democrats' 
best chances to flip a red district to blue. So it's basically the front lines of this effort by Democrats to win back the House. By Deval Patrick going to essentially the most competitive House race in the country, showing that he's involved, that he's interested, he he kind of still gets to have the cover of just being a good Democrat, just being a concerned Democrat, as opposed to someone who is bolstering his presidential aspirations. So maybe it doesn't set off the alarm bells quite as loudly as if he were to go to, say, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, somewhere like that. Exactly. But for you, dear listeners of the horse race, and for you readers of the Massachusetts Playbook, you know that even though Deval Patrick isn't going to Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina yet, this is this is still very significant. Yep. Okay. So let's talk a bit then about how the trip actually went. How was the reception to Deval, to Deval Patrick's message? He, he can be a really compelling speaker, as we all know from you know the time when he was governor here in Massachusetts. How did it actually go for him down in Texas? It went quite well. I spoke to Colin Allred after this campaign event on Sunday over the phone because I am not in Texas, and basically Colin Allred was effusive in his praise of Deval Patrick in saying that he, you know. Patrick spoke to campaign fellows and interns as well as hitting the campaign trail and he said that he was just really encouraging and really authentic and that really resonated with people. My question of course was that Deval Patrick has no connections to Texas whatsoever. What what kind of resonation or like what kind of resonance would he have among people in Texas? But Colin said that the authenticity that Deval Patrick has was really, really something that people appreciated. Interesting. So what does this actually mean then, zooming past 2018 for a minute, what does this mean for 2020? Uh, The New York Times is reporting he'll organize what they're calling a political committee, whatever that means later this year. Are the tea leaves clear on what he's actually up to, or is this still sort of testing the waters? It's still testing the waters. The the talking point that you're hearing by and large from anyone who has spoken with Deval Patrick is that he's still making up his mind. He doesn't know if he's running for president, but that, you know, he enjoys his day job and he's trying to figure out how and where he can be helpful for Democrats. Of course, behind the scenes, these indications of creating a political committee, again, whatever that means, and, you know, clearly having these conversations and getting involved. Obviously, he's thinking about it more actively than not. Where and how that happens and where and how that change occurs into 2020 mode, I think, isn't going to happen anytime soon. It just means that Deval Patrick is trying to be a player in the midterms, full stop. Yeah, so just to be clear, I think the question is, is this an exploratory committee? Is it a political action committee? Is it a, you know, is it getting involved in some super PAC or something? It, it just wasn't yeah. that clear. So yeah, I think that, you know, knowing the answer to what the kind of committee is that he's planning to create will at least reveal a little bit about what his intentions may be. But actually, he wasn't the only Massachusetts political leader making headlines this weekend, even making headlines about 2020 this weekend, right? Yeah, because there is always a Massachusetts connection. I had to slip that in. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think we're past that. It's now like there's only Massachusetts political connections, as somebody pointed out on Twitter this morning. I mean, it seems like half of Massachusetts is listed somewhere as, you know, a potential candidate for 2020. Hell yeah. It sounds really great for people who co-host a campaign (laughs) podcast based out of Massachusetts. I don't know. Absolutely. It'd be great for for us. Great for business. (laughs) (laughs) But, But so essentially this block Blockbuster New York Times story out this weekend had that little nugget about Deval Patrick. The whole point of the story was that Senator Elizabeth Warren is looking at running for president. And this the story itself, there was so much news in it. Seriously, if anyone is even remotely trying to follow 2020, read this story. 
And it was interviews with like four dozen consultants and people all around the country and basically said that Senator Elizabeth Warren is reaching out to all these people in key states, following up with them, asking how she can be helpful, seeing what she can do. And I think that even for those not witnessing this behind the scenes, you're seeing the results of this in a couple different ways. First, Senator Elizabeth Warren was in Nevada in the last month. She spoke to Democrats there. Obviously, Nevada is an early voting state. She was just in Pittsburgh speaking uh, at a union rally um, that was talking about the outcome of the Supreme Court case, you know, really, really rallying around unions and that. And then even earlier this week at the New England Council, there was a breakfast where Senator Elizabeth Warren spoke, and she talked about how she believes in capitalism and she believes in the markets. That, in and of itself, was a bid by Warren toward the middle of the road, those middle voters who she may not necessarily have locked down. Like, there's just there's just so much to kind of parse in what she's doing, and that that story also encapsulated it too. Yeah, and there's some some of that probably that she'd be doing anyway, just for 2018. You know, just trying to help the party out, so it makes it I think a little bit harder to parse. But this article did seem to be more suggestive of the idea that she actually is running, whereas some of the earlier ones seemed like they were being a bit sort of reading tea leaves that didn't necessarily all go together. You know, now it does seem like. It seems like that she's leaning in that direction. Totally, yeah. I mean, even just in reporting that I've done, all of the conversations that I've had has essentially been that, you know, Senator Warren is, you know, just being a good Democrat and kind of along the lines of this default Patrick thing. But at the end of the day, this type of outreach, all eyes are on her. And so she can't make moves like this and not expect waves to be made. So, of course... We're still a ways out from 2020. There's still a key election happening this November, both for Senator Elizabeth Warren herself, as well as for Democrats around the country. It's really just things to watch. All right. Well, uh, co-host of the horse race, usually, and current 2020 presidential candidate bureau chief, Lauren Dzinski, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. So we did our things to watch at the top of the segment with the state budget. So we're going to move right into trivia. Which is everybody's favorite part. So we'll start with last week's question, which was, who was the only person to serve as both president and Supreme Court justice? And for the local connection, this president was also the last president to visit the Massachusetts State House. The answer was William Howard Taft. And we got many good answers this week. But the first one came from MassDOT Chief of Staff Rob Garrity, who wins for being first. But honorable mention goes to Kat Chaput for her Twitter response that included a gif of William Howard Taft with a flashing mustache, which I was very impressed by. Now for this week's question. Returning to the long-running Beacon Hill theme, the Golden Dome over the State House was originally painted yellow before being gilded with gold leaf in 1874. It was also painted at one point. So here's a question. What color was it painted and why? Special horse race reward points for any of you who mail your answers to Horse Race Global Headquarters stamped into a standard size 438-ounce gold bar. Absolutely. It's totally worth it, too. So many extra points this week. So go ahead and send us your gold bars. That's all the time we have this week. I'm Lizzie Wyant of MAPC. And I'm Steve Gazella of the Massing Polling Group. Our producer this week and every week is Hannah Shinatri. Find us online wherever you get your pods. And thank you all for listening.